Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat German and I'm very happy that you have joined me for this episode. Today we're going to go quite far away from England and Western Europe to talk about some of the extensive trading networks that thrived during the early Middle Ages. Globalization is a, a bit of a buzzword today and often seen as a, a very recent invention. But you could argue that this was something that really started to emerge in the first millennium. Because this was a time when goods, people and ideas really started to travel quite rapidly across vast distances. Bringing things like silk from Asia to England and silver from the Middle East to Scandinavia while things like furs, amber and slaves travelled south. And in today's episode, we're going to focus on some of the areas further south, East Africa and the Indian Ocean, to be precise. And we're going to talk about how this part of Africa was actually very well connected with the wider world. And for most of us, the exploitation of Africa, both for the enslavement of its people and its valuable resources in the, the very sort of modern period, is, is very well known. But that more recent slave trade was definitely not the start of it. And if we go back to the early medieval period, something really quite similar took place on the East African coast. So my guest today knows a lot about all of this, and I'm very delighted to welcome Mark Horton, who is a professor of archaeology at the newly formed Cultural Heritage Institute, which is part of the Royal Agricultural University. Mark has led research projects in different parts of East Africa for over 40 years, including extensive excavations on the islands off the East African coast, like Zanzibar, Pemba and Madagascar. And one of his main research interests is precisely these wider global connections that emerge in the early medieval period. And for a bit of disclosure here, I should mention that Mark and I normally collaborate on projects looking at that exact time period, but in much colder and rainier conditions in, in England. But um, those two are actually really quite connected, as uh, we're going to be talking more about later on. But I thought we could start a little bit, Mark, by talking about these resources. So I just mentioned trade, things coming coming out of Africa. What sort of things, what sort of objects and resources are we talking about here? What what was there in this part of Africa that was so desirable for traders? And, and where, where in the world do, do these goods end up? Well... In East Africa, the sort of classic triad of commodities, which is slaves, gold and ivory. 
and the three commodities, the ones that largely form the basis of most historians' discussions about how the eastern coast of Africa was exploited really over up to 2,000 years ago. The, the first ivory trade, for example, is mentioned in a classical document known as the Periplus of the Ithuanian Sea, um, and that describes this elephant ivory that's coming out. And then later on, we certainly got gold trade, which is known, for example, associated with Great Zimbabwe, um, but actually is much older, and a slave trade that certainly goes back to the 7th um, century um, AD or maybe even earlier. So the, sort of the classic triad of commodities, but alongside those is a long list of other things, more exotic things, that also came out of the region. So, for example, we have ambergris, which is a sort of waxy substance that gets exhaled out of whales, which is used as a fixative for perfumes. And because of the, the current system in East Africa, a lot of this washes up on beaches and was prized all the way through the Middle Ages. We have a civic musk. We have leopard skins. We have timber. Uh, the Middle East, for example, had very little local wood and so there's a massive trade in not only high quality teaks but also mangrove poles which were used as roofing materials really up until very recently. The, the mangrove trade, uh, mangrove pole trade continued until the 1990s um, supplying scaffolding in the Emirates and the Gulf states until steel replaced it. Um, so the, these trade routes, um, these trade commodities have a very long history. And I suppose I could say, why did it happen? Well, the key factor are the monsoon winds that blow in one direction for six months of the year and then reverse direction in the following six months, which enable ships to follow the monsoon, um, re-arriving East Africa, await the change of monsoon, and then sail back with their dowels full of these commodities. So really, geography is a, is a huge part of this then as well then isn't it that coastline and and in terms of east africa and these these countries that you've talked about uh, so far what is it there about this and the islands that's so important for the trade to really emerge well the the islands were often places where these trade interactions happened we think partly because islands provided good anchorages. Um, if you can imagine you've got a monsoon wind blowing in, you've got a fringing coastal reef, whereas in islands you can sneak around the back and anchor more safely. Uh, but also they provide a certain safety from the mainland. Mainland Africa was quite a, a, a savage place. Um, we know we have um, a lot of pastoral groups um, along certain sections of the coastline um, who tended to be quite warlike in their activities um, and I think the traders found it much more convenient to come to these island locations where they could find peace and security. So this was a, a sort of safe place to wait at the right time of year to, to continue trading and is that where you also start seeing trading settlements springing up? Yeah so there's a very interesting uh, well, historiography behind all this because in the past, earlier colonial historians uh, would see these places as Arab settlements. They would see these as places where the Arabs came um, from the Gulf region or maybe Indians from the subcontinent and um, they would come here 
And, you know, while they're waiting, the change of monsoon would take local wives and produce quite, kind of a miscegenated sort of half Arab, half African population. Our recent archaeological work over the last 40 years has shown that this is actually not the case. That these communities that develop on the islands are essentially Bantu-speaking, farming, fishing communities that move out onto the islands and happen to be in the right place to interact with these long-distance trade networks. And themselves, they had boats um, that themselves traded with, and there's some evidence that actually they themselves were also sailing to Arabia and to the Middle East with their commodities. So... You, we're talking about now the early medieval period, and you've mentioned that, that these, these objects have been traded for a very long time, so things like the ivory, for example. But what is it really that changes? Uh, I think a lot of these changes take place around 700 or so, don't they, in terms of the, the types of sites that you've, you've worked on and excavated and the scale. What, what is it that happens, and why at that particular point in time? Well, we begin to see trade redeveloping, from, as you rightly say, about 700. Uh, and we can begin to see small quantities of imports turning up in these local indigenous settlements. Uh, but really the big takeoff is around 750. And this is really interesting because this is the point at which the Abbasid dynasty comes into power, displaces the Umayyads, and the Abbasids move the headquarters, the focus of the dynasty, away from the Mediterranean and Damascus to the Middle East um, with their capital in Baghdad. And so suddenly there's this sort of world power out there facing out towards the Indian Ocean. And in this period, around 750, there's an explosion in Indian Ocean trade as this massive consuming Islamic power requires all this, these commodities, requires slaves um, to build up its buildings and its agricultural systems, in its gold, in its ivory. So there's a huge boom time in the Indian Ocean from around 750 to around the thousands. And um, it, it, it's probably driven by the Abbasids and the satellite organized states that, that surround it. So in terms of sources for all of this, now obviously you've been working on the archaeological material, but we don't actually have a lot of knowledge from uh, written sources from the West until the first European contact, which I believe is right about the uh, 15th century or so. But the islands and the coast and the people were, were well described in literature from elsewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about those sources, those other written sources that we have for what's happening in East Africa? The written sources are slightly beguiling. They are quite extensive. Uh, they're written mostly in Arabic. We've got Persian sources. And ironically, we've also got quite a lot of Chinese sources as well. They all have their difficulties in interpretation and they're somewhat fragmentary. Actually, we only have one eyewitness account in this period who actually comes to East Africa. All the rest are secondhand and slightly salacious. They, they quite like to dwell on the cannibalistic habits of the East Africans and all this kind of stuff. The one person who is actually accurate is a man called Al-Mazudi, um, who wrote this massive encyclopedia of world history and world geography. And he comes to East Africa. His last voyage is in 916. And he describes from first hand what the places look like, who the rulers are, the fact that they're Muslims and so forth. And, and so, so his account is by far the most reliable for this period. And 
does he talk about the slave trade or does he talk about the goods or, or what, what sort of things does he describe in the account? So rather curiously, Mazudi makes only the slightest reference to gold. He makes virtually no reference to a slave trade, but he spends his time dwelling extensively on the ivory trade. And he goes to an island called Kambalu, which we think is Pemba Island. Um, and, but then he also records um, where the ivory is coming from, not on the coast of East Africa, immediately opposite um, Pemba Island, but way down south in the Mozambique Channel, where there is apparently a massive network um, of ivory trading going into the far South African interior. So that's a really great way of showing those wider connections. And interestingly, for those who might be, be a bit more interested in, in uh, the Viking Age and the Vikings, we have come across al Masudi before because he also travels uh, extensively into the, the parts of Eastern Europe where the, the Vikings settled and travelled uh, right about the same time. So we get these incredible connections between uh, North and South, which we'll, we'll get back to a bit again uh, in a moment. But let's get back to the slave trade then. So... What other sources of knowledge do we have them? Is there anything in the archaeology that can tell us about it or or anything about the scale um, of the slave trade? Well, the slave trade is, is interesting because um, we know that East African slaves are known as Zanj slaves. Zanj is the Arabic name for this region. And there was a massive revolt of the Zanj slaves in the early part of the ninth century, which practically brought the Abbasid Caliphate to an end, actually. Now, there's a lot of argument about whether the Zanj slaves really came from East Africa or not. Um, but the archaeological evidence suggests that they must have done. We have enormous sites uh, which um, are full of exotic and expensive trade items, um, not complex architecture, uh, no stone buildings, but on the other hand, extensive areas of occupation and middens, um, timber buildings. And to me, the only justification for these enormous sites is that they were massive slave trading corrals and settlements where the Zan slaves were then taken and shipped to the Middle East. We don't see anything like burials uh, or anything like that in the places where they, they were destined. Is there any evidence from any new scientific results or anything like that? Well, not, not yet. I mean, what we do know is that the population of the mainland opposite seems to have a massive decline at this period, which is quite good evidence for some form of slave trading to me. Um, but also really interesting observation that these island settlements are Islamic, they're Muslims. Although they're indigenous Africans, they are converted into Islam. Um, however, on the mainland, there is no trace of Islam, um, apart from the settlements that are right on the beach. There's not a single mosque before the 19th century, which is more than 100 yards from a beach or estuary. Um, Islam didn't penetrate inland. And one reason for that is because you can't enslaved Muslims. And so maybe Islam was being kept very much to the coast and the indigenous populations in the interior were to be exploited for slavery. So actually there was, um, if you were living in these places, there would have been a benefit to you to convert to Islam because you would be, be, be safer, essentially. Is that what, what, what the point of that is? Absolutely. And that's, and that's why 
essentially people become Muslim, are very keen to become Muslim very early on. Uh, it's not because they're Arab traders marrying local women, but it's the locals becoming converted to Islam. And that, I think, is a really important point which we don't necessarily think about, because we see the, the slave trade coming out of the Middle East and, and, and out of the, the, the caliphate going north and, and looking for slaves from, from northern territories and interacting with the Vikings, presumably for precisely the same reasons, that they, they need to go outside their own territory to, to, to find people that they can legitimately uh, enslave. Yes, yeah, so, so, so the indigenous, these Muslim communities have to reinforce their Muslim identity. One thing they do very interestingly is, is mint their own silver coins. Uh, these are minuscule little silver coins that are probably um, from melted dirhams. Those are the silver coins that you find up in the, in the Viking north. Um, but in this case, they're melted down and turned into these tiny coins that weigh, you know, half a gram if that. But on there, they strike their name on the one side and a Quranic epithet on the other, so that they're saying that these people, they are converted Muslims and these coins are the symbol of it. And that's a, that's a, a local East African invention, because that's something that we don't really see so much elsewhere at that time, is there? That's right. And the right of coinage of making coins was heavily controlled in the caliphate. You couldn't go off minting your own coins. And so the fact that they are minting their own coins is a massive statement of their political independence, but their adherence to Islam. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so this is a lot about uh, the, the slaves that are, are going out of East Africa. What about some of these other resources? We talked about ivory, for example, earlier on. What, what else can you say about those commodities? So ivory is really interesting because Al-Mazudi suggests it's coming from the south. And in fact, this is remarkably confirmed by the archaeological evidence. Um, because increasingly, iron, what's called Iron Age archaeology, this is the the Bantu archaeology of southern Africa, um, these sites have significant numbers of glass beads. Um, now, these glass beads and, and also some stone beads as well. You get a few carnelian beads, but principally glass beads, um, which are being made, we think, either in the Middle East um, or in India. Um, and we've done extensive science on the beads to work out its elemental content. So we can work exactly where the glass for these beads comes from. And it's quite clear that there's an extensive bead trade from the coast. Um, and in fact, we've found the site where much of this must be coming from, a place known as Shibuen, uh, which was the main entrepot out of which these commodities from South Africa were coming. And these beads extended all the way across South Africa, Zimbabwe, and even into Botswana, uh, you know, seven, eight hundred kilometers inland, and must be being exchanged both amongst the um, agricultural communities, but also amongst the hunter-gatherers, because it's the hunter-gatherers, what we now call the Khoikhoi or Bushmen, um, the hunter-gatherers who are probably hunting the elephants. Right, so you have this uh, direct connection uh, really, really far inland. So the networks essentially allow these goods to come out and it's the beads that are coming in uh, in return because obviously for that trade to function, there's got to be something pretty valuable uh, for, for the hunters. Well, it's, it may well be that it's not exclusive. Beads might just be what we see archaeologically. And of course, they're very light and they can trade move over huge distances. So they're kind of, if you like, the, the smoking gun of this trade. And my guess is that that's most likely to have been textiles. Textiles are extremely valuable in African societies. Um, the technology at that point wasn't present. And so you can see how valuable those textiles must have been. And of course, they decay. So there's a constant demand for textiles as they break down, they get rotten and so forth. Um, I mean, a textile probably lasts five years or whatever in an African climate. So there's a continuous demand for this material. And um, I'm sure that's what's fueling this long distance trade. That's really interesting because that's something archaeologically that we just wouldn't find any traces of in that sort of climate. And of course, it may be part of a a quite a complex network because textiles are probably being made in India 
well, in the Middle East. Um, so somehow the textiles are coming via the Middle East or coming directly to East Africa. There's a really complicated, almost triangular trade route crisscrossing the Indian Ocean, um, producing these commodities. So that's uh, quite interesting. So we're talking about India and thinking more about the, the further east uh, of that network. I wonder if we can just move in that direction a little bit. So we've talked a lot about the connections to the, to the Middle East, but what about Asia and what about you know places like China? Is there any evidence that there's contact between China and India and then down to East Africa at the time? Well, one of the big mysteries still largely unresolved in Indian Ocean history is Madagascar. So Madagascar is still populated um, by people who speak a language which is very closely akin to languages spoken in Borneo, which is in Southeast Asia, part of what's called the Bariti group of languages. And so uh, the both linguistic and now the DNA evidence strongly suggests that Madagascar was settled partly from East Africa, but also largely from Southeast Asia. So the one of the great mysteries is how did this happen? And the suggestion is that actually this is part of a long distance trade network that uh, follows the sort of more equatorial route or sub-equatorial route from Southeast Asia directly to Madagascar. And so when you're into that network, you're then rapidly into the South China Sea and into China. So we know from our sites dating from 800 or thereabouts, significant quantities of Chinese ceramics mixed in with the Islamic ceramics, mixed in with the local ceramics. So there clearly were these connections. The traditional interpretation is that is Arab ships were sailing to China and bringing back these Chinese ceramics or then being traded to East Africa. But it's equally possible that these trade links were directly with Southeast Asia and there onwards to China. Oh, that was really interesting. And are there any shipwrecks or anything like that that can tell us a bit more about that? Well, extraordinary, there is. Um, near the Sunda Straits, which is the way in which you would pass between Java and Sumatra, um, there was a very famous shipwreck dating to around 830 called the Belatung Shipwreck. And this was excavated by a sort of commercial treasure hunters a few years ago, but the collections all being kept together and there were quite good investigations of the Hal structure itself. The Belaton ship was full of 40,000 vessels of Chinese, what's called Changsha stoneware, which is exactly the type of painted stoneware we find in the Camors, for example, and all along the trading towns of the East African coast at this period. The Belatum ship was actually made from timber from East Africa. So <laughs> was it you know, was it a ship built in East Africa? Was it a ship built in the Middle East out of African timber that had been traded up there? Um, was it making for the East African coast or was it off course doing a much more traditional route directly to the Middle East? But the Belatung is a really interesting example of a ship that's clearly connected into this trade network. That's a fantastic example that really is like a manifestation of, of all those connections. How about other ships? Are there any, any others about specific commodities? Well, actually, only a few hundred miles away from the Belatung ship, there's another ship called the Surabon ship. So this is an Indonesian ship made out of what's called lash lug construction. So it's definitely not 
a sewn boat like the Bellaton shipwreck is. And the Suabon ship was uh, twice the size, um, twice the length, four times the size of the Bellaton. It was th probably 35 metres in length. So this is longer than, for example, Columbus's ships, if you put it into perspective. And this was filled with 400,000 Chinese vessels, believe it or not, but also vast quantities of rock crystal. Now, rock crystal is really interesting because this is coming out of Madagascar. And we've been excavating sites on the Comores that are essentially processing this rock crystal trade in the 8th century and is then being sent both to the Abbasid world of the Middle East and then later on into the Fatimid world of the Mediterranean. Huge lumps of completely pure rock crystal. But this Tiwabon ship had these lumps. One of them was half a tonne in size of rock crystal that was coming from Madagascar. That's some quite staggering quantities you're talking about. Half a tonne of rock crystal, and what is it, 400,000 vessels. That's, yeah, that's madness. But it shows that this isn't a, a sort of small scale little cottage industry. This is, this is trade on a massive scale. And when you talk about rock crystal, I have to, of course, make the connections back up to the north again, because we know that exactly the same time, so many of these commodities make their way very far up north, up to northern Europe, and are especially prized by the Vikings. And we see a lot of rock crystal, which may well be of it. We don't know yet, but, but we think that that may come from the same sources. So, so you, you're sort of seeing two two different parts of the, of the network here. Can you can you say a little bit more about how this extends back up to Europe at that time? Well, yes, absolutely, because all this. East Africa material is being funneled into the Gulf and is being funneled into Baghdad and all the great Abbasid cities, which, of course, are the trading points for the Vikings coming from the north. And so it's no, it's not a difficult jump to see. We've got the ships, we've got the, the historical records, we have the archaeology that clearly shows how these high value precious items are coming from tens of thousands of miles away are coming up into the Gulf, being funneled into the Abbasid cities. And then you can tell me how that material is then connected equally well through the Russian rivers up into the Baltic world and beyond. Yeah, precisely. So this is this is where it sort of comes into this whole idea of globalisation, isn't it? That's similar to more modern uh, concepts because we have the networks and some of those are pre-existing and some of them are being developed uh, at precisely this time, starting in about the 8th century. And it does seem to me very much like what's happening in the Middle East is, is, a, is a really key and crucial connector between North and, and South and, and, and East and West. Yeah, and, and, and Kat, the problem that as scholars we've always had in this is that we have the people working in the Viking world and they just about understand a bit about what's going on in Islam, but certainly not anywhere beyond. And then we then have the scholars working in the Islamic world who have vague recollection of the Viking world and the African world. And then we have people working down in Africa who have a sort of understanding, but actually connecting these enormous mind-boggling trade routes and connections is kind of, you know, beyond the sort of scholarly mindset at the moment. Absolutely. So I think we need we need more ambitious projects, wouldn't you say? That's right. Indeed, we do. Um, and, you know, it's science. It's ultimately it's science that's going to help us tell these things. So, for example, you mentioned rock crystal. 
Um, we need to find a method to be able to provenance rock crystal. I mean, at present there isn't one um, because by definition it, it's very pure um, silicate, a silicate crystal. So, so to actually find trace elements and things, it is very, very difficult. So we need to find ways to characterize and to provenance this material to do the ancient DNA on the human remains um, and to really bring the science to bear to understand these global connections. Okay, so just to summarise a little bit then, let's let's talk a little bit about just who the people were that were involved in this. And it's easy to see it as a very much an, an external thing that is just happening and um, the, the, the locals are very passive in that. Is that an accurate reflection or, or what's really, what's sort of happening internally and, and who is involved in everything in this trade? It's quite clear that the coastal communities in East Africa are actually the people who are in control of the trade. I mean, think of it, you know, you're a, a ship coming in from the Middle East. And in fact, we've got a contemporary illustration that shows that there's a ship captain and we've got a whole series of merchants who are on board the ship who are basically undertaking the trade. So the ship arrives on these into these ports and the merchants are kind of left on their own. They go ashore. And ultimately, they have to trade with their partners on the in these ports. And literally, the merchants are, are kind of dumped on the beach. <laughs> Powerless, have no military support. They have nothing. They're, they're out there with a, a trunk load of textiles and precious items. And they want to get buy ivory or whatever. And so essentially, they're completely at the uh, mercy of the local inhabitants. So they have to try strike up trade links with the local merchants who are obviously quite keen to do so because they want all these goodies that are coming from the Middle East. And we know traditionally that the sort of hospitality that ultimately the locals sponsor these merchants. So an individual merchant would move into a particular merchant's house, local merchant's house, uh, who will be fed and watered and looked after during the change of monsoon. But that merchant could only trade with the local person. So there's a sort of monopoly going on. And in, in exchange, the locals acquired commodities, but themselves became more and more urbanised, more and more Islamicized. They started building stone houses rather than mud and wattle houses. Um, they became much more sophisticated and essentially assimilating a lot of the ideas um, of their traders in very much the same way as going on the Viking world. That It wasn't, I believe, a set of rape and pillage, um, but there's a second phase of connections between the Vikings, the Irish or the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons that was a much more two-way process. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of connecting, taking advantage of the conditions that they come across and actually using that very much to, to people's advantage. That's right. Exploiting to making the best of the situation. Because I, on these voyages, millions could be made in modern terms. You know, they were very dangerous voyages. Uh, but if you undertook a successful half dozen or so, you would be a multimillionaire in modern terms. So the rewards were enormous. But they had to be done very much in private free enterprise. So we're talking about entrepreneurs, really, if we're going to use another modern modern term <laughs> in many ways. That's right. Global entrepreneurs. That's exactly um, who these merchants are. Fantastic. So I think we can we can see quite clearly how this 
early medieval period had just a tremendous impact on shaping what East Africa was to become and, and, and what we see if we travel there there today. So, I mean, what, what would you say would be the, the most crucial part or the sort of crucial legacy, I guess, from that period? Well, I mean, you know, there were 300 ruined cities, for example, <laughs> um, most of which are covered in bush. You know, there's massive quantities of ruins. Um, I mean, if you're going to visit, then some of this culture still very much survives today. Places like Lamu, for example, in the Lamu archipelago in Kenya, or Zanzibar, or down in the Comores, or in Madagascar. Elements of this entrepreneurial culture, this Swahili culture, as we call it, still survives to this day. Wonderful. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure talking about the other ends of these networks that we normally investigate when we work together. I'm wondering if I sort of drew the short straw in, uh, in terms of climate when choosing my research location, so I'll have to come along next time. So this brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please do remember to subscribe to Gone Medieval if you haven't already. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review online and tell all your friends and family about it. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and this has been Gone Medieval from History Hit. Do join us again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.